0: For my first interview in 2020, um, I thought it would be valuable to discuss elements that are tangential, but relevant to the AML community. And that's the horrific acts committed by terrorists around the world. One of those acts hits very close to home for a number of us, but not as much as it does for my uh, guest today. We're going to be talking to Tom Durkin, Tom works at the Center for Peacemaking at Marquette University. He's also part of the Foley Foundation, and that was created uh, for Jim Foley, who was murdered by ISIS uh, back in uh, 2014. Uh, Sometimes when we talk about terrorism, terrorist financing, we talk about it sort of abstractly. Um, What are red flags? How can we do better due diligence? That sort of thing. It is um, difficult to uh, connect it to real life activities for many of us, so I was uh, interested in Tom's view about that tough time in his life being one of Jim's closest friends, but also what Tom himself has done in his career. Uh, He has done a number of things that basically the theme is working for others. And um, I think you're definitely going to be interested in uh, T- Tom's discussions about what he's done before he came to Marquette and what he's doing today. So uh, sit back and enjoy this edition of AML Conversations. Tom, thanks for uh, talking to me today. I want a couple of things I, w- I want to uh, delve into with you. Uh, part of it is your. Your current role is a research and grant coordinator here with the Center for Peacemaking at Marquette University. I want to talk to you about how that works. Um, We were fortunate enough to sit down with your colleague, your director, Pat Kennelly, last year. Uh, So I want to follow up on some things, but ask you what your particular role is. But I also thought it would be a good opportunity, given all the conflicts that are going on in the Middle East. Obviously, we're doing this at the time of the issues in Iran but obviously everything in there is a sort of a powder keg and, um, you have a unique, uh, position, uh, regarding your, uh, your close friend and, uh, Marquette grad, Jim Foley. And I want to, um, uh, talk a bit about, uh, Jim's life and his foundation and y- your, your work together and how it translated to w- what you're doing today. But, Give folks a sense of the the Jim Foley story. I think most of us know a photojournalist um, in the Middle East obviously was captured and horrifically uh, murdered by ISIS. But give us the backstory of Jim. What we'll do is we will post the documentary about him, a link so people can see that, because that was, for me, not knowing him like you did, of course, mm-hmm. very compelling and very... But give us a sense of of Jim and Jim's work uh, sure um I was very
1: fortunate I, I met Jim during my first week as a freshman on Marquette's campus back in 1992 and I was coming from around Chicago so I thought I knew everything and I meet this guy who's from small town New Hampshire and uh wide-eyed and uh ready to tackle the big city of Milwaukee and uh it was during our first week. We just stumbled upon each other and uh, started up a conversation. And I quickly, quickly realized that this guy was super interesting, super adventurous. Uh, whereas I thought I, I knew things. I knew where to go, what to do. I, I They were thoughts. Jim was like really... Like into exploring different neighborhoods, or if there was a, if Bobby Seal was coming to town, he was going to go listen to Bobby Seal talk. So yeah, he'd drag me along, and after a while, I didn't have to be dragged. You know, like, right. I wanted to go, like I wanted to see things, and he was just a, a really uh, interesting to kind of observe because the more you're around him, the more you realized he was uh, he was not telling you a lot about himself. He was really good at probing you getting information out of you and so over the our four years as undergraduates we 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 had a number of adventures he would often do his own thing he'd go off like he was someone who did like the map programs which are the marquette action program going to uh down south during spring break to work on uh building homes uh habitat for humanity type stuff um always like looking to do something and like i don't think when you're younger like you necessarily realize these uh these traits about your friends are like, they, they they don't really stick with you. But when you have time to, when you get older and you reflect back, you realize like this was a guy that was always looking for stories. And, um, you know, when we got near the end of our, our Marquette education, we'd both taken the LSAT and we, we, however, had decided weeks before we took it that we were not going to law school, but you know, you're, you're an undergraduate, you pay all this money. I think it was like 85 bucks back then. Like we're, we're taking this test so we took it anyway both did pretty well well enough to get into law school but we had decided that, that was not our path and uh, after graduation neither one of us uh, took on like what someone would call a permanent job we grad schools so he did teach for America I was out in Idaho and so it allowed our friendship to continue and for Jim what that meant is he started teaching in inner-city Phoenix um, did that for three or four years, then he went and, uh, well, a lot of people don't know about him is he, he went to do a, a creative writing masters, an MFA at UMass, and he was a super talented writer. He won the Indiana uh, University Review Prize, which is a national award, but I think also around that time was when he was realizing that he was creating stories, and he was much more interested in telling people stories. And this goes back to what I remember him as an undergrad. Like, he was always probing. He was asking questions, getting to know people. And he had, a, like, a gen, more than anyone I've ever met, a genuine interest in people's stories. And when I say people, like, underdogs. Like. So, it, it didn't surprise me that after his uh, MFA, he had returned to Phoenix and then eventually moved to Chicago. And in, it was in Chicago that he started working in a, the Cook County Jail. Hmm. teaching inmates uh, at, this, at this boot camp uh, program, which was an alternative sentencing program, and he did that for two and a half years. And it was at that point in his 30s that he said, I, he went to, I have to go back to school for journalism, and that's when he went to Medill.
0: Wow. So it, late, much later.
1: Much later. I mean, he had already been a teacher. He'd already been a, a, a fiction writer. He had tried these other things, but then this is when he decided, like, I have, I'm going into journalism. And the MFA program, or the, I'm sorry, the master's program at Northwestern is a one-year program, and they're on the quarter system. And I remember when he was finishing his first full year, he said, I'm taking one more quarter, and it's on conflict journalism. Wow. And so he did this in D.C. Uh, and he, I remember going out to visit him, and he was, as he was finishing up, and this is when he started talking about it, he was going to cover war. And it kind of, it's one of those things, like, it, it shocks you, but it doesn't shock you. You like, like I'm not surprised where he's going, but I'm surprised he's going to do that.
0: What years were these when he was? Uh, he told you he was going to go cover war. This was in 2007,
1: 2006, 2007. was when he had finished the uh, program at Medill and said he was going. To go. and in fact, the way he told me ultimately that he was going is he came back to Chicago. And he stopped him for a visit and he goes, oh, by the way, I gotta take a train up to Detroit to get Kevlar. I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, I found a guy that's selling it for a good price, so I'm gonna go up I'm like, what do you need Kevlar for? He goes, oh, well, I'm gonna go to, I'm going overseas, I'm gonna embed. So
0: was, who was he working for at the time?
1: When he first went overseas, he embedded with the Indiana National Guard. And he was more, he was, uh, so he was working through there, but he was just selling pieces to different places. So he was freelancing for the most part. He had a job for a while with USAID. Um,
0: So his stories would appear in government publications as well as uh, uh, traditional media?
1: Exactly. And he had his own blog that he was running. uh, And it was called The World of Troubles, uh, ironically. And then uh, he eventually, what happened is he was working with the military. And he was, in his view from what he told me, was that he wasn't getting the real story because they were telling the story that they thought the people, the government wanted to hear because he was surrounded by them. So that's when he decided to go in and freelance. Uh, And his first freelancing gigs were in Libya during the
0: the Arab Spring. And so um, I do recall, tell me if I'm wrong, I do recall that he did a, a number of those things in Conflict there was, and then came home and went back again. I think I remember that from the documentary. Absolutely, he was going back and forth. Yeah. I mean, it was
1: okay. like he and he was he was abducted in Libya. The first, he was abducted twice. The first time was in Libya, and that was, I believe, the date was March 5th. And that previous Christmas, he was at my house on one of his uh, trips back. Then he got uh, abducted in March of 2011. Mm-hmm and was held for 44 days by the Qaddafi regime, Regime, and he was released on April 20th. Just
0: him or with other reporters? He, he was
1: abducted with three others, uh, one of whom, Anton Hammerl, who was a South African photojournalist, was killed right. during the abduction. And then he was held with uh, Manu Bravo, a Spaniard, and Claire Gillis,
0: another American. So when he was released, he came back to States for a bit? He did. He did came you, back. Did you interact with him before he went back the, the, the second time?
1: We did. We, we had a, a number of interactions. He, in fact, he was back for six months. He was living with his brother, Michael, uh, and he was working for Global Post and he had a desk job. And I'm, I'm in contact still with some people from Charlie Senate and some other people that were with Global Post and do other things now. And they said jim was like a caged animal like he just he was not going to be a, a, he was not going to work at a desk
0: the rest of his life it's interesting that someone would after being abducted and and obviously fortunately released the first time would go back so obviously without sounding facetious he was fearless he was
1: fearless there was and there was a couple things at play um, when jim came back i i know he was he was traumatized by anton's death and he'd only known Anton for a few days, but they had hit it off. Anton had a wife, two young kids, and it really uh, it really impacted Jim. In fact, when Jim came back, he ended up uh, uh, putting together a, a fundraiser at Christie's, like auctioning off pa- paintings and uh, war photography to benefit Anton's kids. And his first Jim's first trip back overseas was back to Libya, and part of what he went
0: for was to try to locate Anton's remains. Wow. He was both a, write, uh, a writer and a photojournalist. He did both. He,
1: he was, and the, the writing came natural to him and then mm-hmm. journalism, and he was pretty much a self-taught photojournalist. Mm-hmm. but then that's part of the thing. As a freelancer, you, you could do both these things for you. I mean, you, all you really need, and they, this comes up in the documentary mm-hmm. is you have an iPhone, you can. Right. But he was also I mean he was practiced with the camera and um, he was I think he would call himself a photojournalist.
0: So, uh, what's the time frame when he returns to the Middle East uh, and and gets? He got captured in 2012. Is that when he got captured? Yeah. yeah. So he
1: it was originally uh, originally released in April of 2011. Probably about six months later, he started going into. He had gone back to Libya, then he started going into Syria, and he went into Syria three or four times, and he was abducted in. Um, Syria on Thanksgiving Day of 2012.
0: Again, you said you interacted with him when he, when he came back and, and didn't want to stay behind a desk. If you can, what was, what was his view about the danger since he's already, he had already witnessed it? So like I said, obviously, he, he felt, and my words, you tell me if I'm right, he wanted to tell the stories that were so important to him regardless. But after you know, almost losing your life the first time, it's, it's hard to figure out people being that strong to want to go back and do it again.
1: It's it's Trust me, this is, I mean, we're five years out and I, it's still something I struggle with. In fact, I was in uh, Brooklyn recently and I was talking with Brian Oaks, and Brian Oaks is a childhood friend of of Jim's, and he's the one who made the documentary, uh, Jim, the James Foley story, which you mentioned at the beginning. Right. And Brian and I were actually talking about this, and part of it was, and I don't know necessarily where it came from, but Jim... Truly believed One in the goodness of people Like he thought that he could find the good in people um, More so than I think many more so than I do I know And uh, He also just I, I don't know how he was able to Compartmentalize it But I think For him It, it was worth that risk To tell people who couldn't Tell their stories like To, to be able to tell their stories Like um, if he's not there, who tells it, if he's not seeking a story, and I know that it's hard for a lot of people to imagine, like, I'm, I'm not putting myself in that danger. I'm not going to do that. But I truly believe that Jim, and I'm not trying to make him sound like he's better or like, like saintly or anything like that. He, he just truly believed that the risk was worth it. That, and he, he says it, he's like, for some reason he has this physical courage, But it's more. He gets into it's more about moral courage, this courage just to do what's right, and in his mind, that was the right thing to do.
0: So he was abducted by ISIS during that two-year period of time. Uh, I think it's pretty well known that um, the U.S. policy is to not negotiate uh, with hostages. Uh, to re- have hostages released, at least that's my general understanding. From mm-hmm. just for not knowing what you know about this, but through those that two-year period of time, what was uh, the extent you could share the the interactions between uh, the Foley family and, and friends and neighbors in terms of uh, you know trying to see if uh, you could get Jim released? I mean, just just high level.
1: Yeah, well, the, the, the part of the, the I've always thought part of the problem was that when Jim was abducted in Libya, we knew Gaddafi had him. And we we had a, this group called FOJs, the Friends of Jim. And we, I don't know how we did it, why we did it, but we were we would have a conference call every other day. And we were reaching out to embassies. We were reach, reach, reaching out to politicians. We uh, had friends who got in to see McCain and uh, John Kerry. Uh, we were blasting it everywhere. And... We were successful in getting him home, and I I truly believe that part of it was the influence we had, that there was enough noise. Um, When Jim was abducted the second time, I think a number of us, and there was a group of about 15 or 20 of us that were part of this, felt, all right, we'll just do the same thing again. Right. We didn't, we were naive, and this time he wasn't held by a government actor, so there was no one to put the pressure on. Uh, and this time, the, the government said to the Foley family and to friends who were involved to keep it quiet. So it was complete
0: night and day. Um, What's the policy reason behind, quote, keeping it quiet? Because did they feel they could then figure out who was holding him, or is it something much more abstract?
1: You know, my understanding is that, uh, that when you're dealing with uh, a group that they—and I don't—it's hard to imagine, but in 2012, we didn't really know of ISIS. Right. They were still like right. the— you had the Taliban, you had al-Nusra, like not, these aren't bad guys, but ISIS was not on anyone's radar. So the idea is that if you, at least my understanding is that if you uh, have too much media coverage, that says the value of this person goes up, then the asking goes up. Um, the other idea that uh, is out there is that if you provide a ransom, that then makes it, other people more vulnerable, sure. although there's studies, Joel Simon from the Committee to Protect Journalists has a book, uh, We Want to Negotiate, that kind of strikes that down and says that it, it, it has not been proven that more people are abducted because of a ransom. The other thing that was happening at that time, and this is something that started to be fixed after Jim's death and after Stephen Sotloff and Peter Kasich and these others were all, all, all murdered, is Our government wasn't working even together. There was no one. It didn't seem like anyone knew what the other group was doing. And and since then, there's been a fusion cell created. There's like a, there's one person they report to that's in charge. Like that, It was just like different people doing different things. I remember having conversations with Diane Foley and they were asking Diane what, essentially what she knew instead of telling, like, it was almost they were going to her cause Diane was going to France to meet with people that were released. She was going to these other places and they would try to get information from her. And it it just seemed kind of backwards. Like, wait, you're, you're supposed to be the experts. You
0: like, right. So, um, obviously the end came in, uh, 2014 and Mm -hmm. there's, there's no good reason to go over that. Like you say, it's still hard for you even today. What I want to do is, um, Take take a break and then come back and talk about the Foley Foundation, the Foley Freedom Fund, and what you're doing today with the Center for Peacemaking. So we'll just take a quick break. Sure. Tom. After those um, the horrific events and uh, the loss of the, the loss of uh, Jim and others uh, in 2014, the Foley family has been, as you have uh, working with them as well, so committed to a, a number of things. Uh, we will direct folks to the Foley Foundation links and I know they created a a Freedom Fund that I was uh, honored to be able to go to an event last year where they gave awards to a number of uh, individuals and entities including the Center for Peacemaking here at Marquette. Um, What what I've gleaned from their advocacy is security training for future independent journalists uh, but also to deal with this issue regarding Uh, ransoms and hostage-taking. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, their goal? And a a lot of it has to do with protecting journalists, which, as we both know, in this day and age, becomes particularly important for a variety of reasons beyond this. But tell us about the mission of the organization, because I know you're actively involved with them.
1: Sure. With the Foley Foundation, and the Foley Foundation is... Exists because of the strength and willpower and determination of Diane Foley, Jim's mom. Um, her and her husband, Doctor John Foley, are the ones that started it. They they both put everything they have into it. But Diane Foley, uh, if you've if you I've, never, met, I've met her, she's yeah. amazing. Yeah.
0: Just in a brief conversation, you could just tell.
1: Right, where if you ever see her on, she's you know, they'll they'll turn to her the even to this day about policy statements or when there's uh, a, a, a hostage comes home. She is a force, and she is uh, in D.C. quite often. We actually have an office now in D.C. We, we, we were in New Hampshire only, but now we're in D.C. with a, a new executive director, uh, Margo Ewan, and then Diane Foley, who uh, gives everything. She has this. She, her, her focus and our foundation's focus are on two pillars. It's uh, hostage advocacy and journalism safety. And my role is more with the, the journalism safety, but in terms of hostage advocacy, one of the things that Diane and the foundation was able to do is they were able to bring government agencies together. And there, when Jim and Stephen and uh, Peter and all and others were missing, there's a lot of infighting. There were groups not working together, like who no one knew necessarily what the other group was doing. And it started under Obama, and it's continued under under Trump that there is a fusion cell that works on hostage cases. And so one of the things we do is we continue, I and mean, for lack of a better term, is, uh, terms is uh, to put pressure on the government to make sure they're doing everything we can for American citizens uh, in terms of policy, in terms of trying to get our people home. Um, so that's that's the one pillar. The other pillar is on journalism safety. And one of the things we, you and I have just talked about really good about uh, this focus on independent or freelance uh, journalists and journalists the reason we focus on independent journalism, although that's evolving, and I'll get to that in a minute, is because freelancers don't have a bureau. They don't have the necessarily the the money to do things like uh, heat fat training, which is uh, deals with first aid training. No, no
0: infrastructure for them. No
1: infrastructure for hostile environment uh, first aid training, and lack of insurance, lack of uh things, the basic needs, and. Since bureaus aren't sending people as much to dangerous zones because of, of the risk, freelancers are filling that void. Gotcha. And we believe that we need freelancers to fill that void, but we also need freelancers to be safe. So when there's an idea about independent journalists, we're talking about journalists that don't have this bureau to, to, to go back to. But what we're really focused on, which I've been a, a part of, is Ellen Shearer, who is the Medill uh, Bureau Chief, um, she put together a graduate-level curriculum uh, shortly after Jim's death. And she had been an instructor of Jim's at Northwestern when he studied in D.C. Uh, because he wanted to work uh, in conflict zones. And she put together a graduate curriculum, and it, it's great. and It's it's very dense, and we had a bunch of schools using it. But then we started thinking, we're like, you know what? All journalists need this, and jur- journalists need it at a younger age. Right. And so what we've done is we've created these safety modules, and I'm, I'm really excited because we implemented them at Marquette this fall. And uh, I just went through the first round of uh, surveys from feedback from students and faculty. We revised it, and now we have other schools, University of Florida, West Virginia, University of New Hampshire, Arizona State, Indiana University, uh, and a bunch of other schools that are going to start implementing these across the curriculum and the idea is that we need journalists to start thinking about safety before they need to go. In. And it's not just for people in conflict zones. I mean, sure. you have someone covering the Boston Marathon. Right. You have someone covering a concert uh, in Vegas. It's, it's, it's a changing world. Uh, unfortunately, uh, we have a lot of animus directed towards journalists these days. The fake news, enemy of the people. Um that comes from high positions. That sure. makes journalism less safe. Uh, people have a distrust, and one of one of my concerns always is that I think that it's getting so blurred, and people are not necessarily differentiating between what is media and what is journalism. Because right. journalists are out there; they're they've got their boots on the ground, they're fact checking everything, and then that gets confused with people that just come on and spew their opinions. And, and, and there are you know, people on the left, people on the right, but there, there's an anger uh, for journalism, journalists, that I think is just completely uh, unfounded but driven from the top down that's making uh, it frankly
0: less safe. Well, what I noticed uh, at, the, uh, at the Foley uh, Awards dinner was the awards that they gave, uh, career awards to, to journalists, uh, just to make your point, the mm. importance of the of the fourth estate, if you if you will, and so I think that is a nice byproduct of what they're doing. It's security issues, but it's also the importance of understanding and, frankly, respecting what journalists do. You don't have to agree with uh, you know commenters and opinion writers, but journalists, for the most part, are. Fact-based reporters, right? And I
1: mean, you can. It's written into our constitution the importance of a free press and the protection of it. And I mean, you can go back to, uh, to Tocqueville back in the eighteen thirties, forties. He talks about the without a free press, you do not have a democracy. There needs to be somebody that's that's doing this. And so it's it's an incredibly important work. And you know, obviously, Jim is our uh, the lens which we view it in terms of safety, but. We benefit from a healthy, robust right. journalists journalists out there. So we, we we're doing all we can to make sure that they're safe and doing a, a
0: most important job. And we will we will post uh, links for uh, the audience uh, on how to get more involved. I want to go to you for a bit. Um, you're here at Marquette Center for Peacemaking, and again, your 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 title probably doesn't describe all that you do, but a research and grant coordinator. Um, Again, we were fortunate to talk to Pat earlier last year regarding the sort of the mission of the center. What is your role there? And did you join the center? What's your timing in terms of the horrific thing that happened to Jim and his colleagues? When did you become part of it? Was there a a connection that you were looking to land in a place that did what you and Jim both subscribe to and the importance of uh, helping sort of change the mentality of people regarding conflict?
1: That's, a, that's an interesting question, and I'm going to start with the, 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 the second part of that, what led me towards, towards her. I mentioned before that Jim had been working in the Cook County jails, and when Jim went back to Medill to go to journalism, I was finishing up a Ph.D. here at, a- at Marquette, and I had decided not to pursue a research position or a tenure-track position. I took Jim's job at the Cook County Jail, so I spent eight years teaching in the same program, teaching felons, and uh, uh, convicted felons, uh, reading, writing, GED, college level courses, and after Jim was killed, and he was killed in August of 2014, I just couldn't be there. I, I couldn't. I couldn't be there. And I started looking, and I had made a connection with Pat, who you had talked to earlier, who's just a great guy. And I started talking about what I was up to, and I'm like, I need to come back to Milwaukee. And I, you're, you're a Marquette guy. I had to come back to Marquette. It felt like home, even though I'm not from Milwaukee. I right. felt like I needed I needed this place. And I started talking to Pat, and uh, I started you know adjuncting a few classes, taking a few hours in the center, and this position kept evolving. And it, it's been great because I, I had my feet in, in two different places. Uh, places because right? I work for the Foley Foundation on a part-time basis and I work for Marquette on a full-time basis and I feel like we have similar missions um in terms of making the world a better place a safer place and so what I'm allowed to do here at the center is I can support these programs that we do we we have a PeaceWorks program that goes into urban schools to teach young kids that are traumatized by violence some non strategies um, uh, skills that can help them that then we try to translate into families into communities to build safer, uh, healthier, uh, urban communities. Um, I'm able to teach a peace studies course to Marquette students that, uh, talks about how all our professions benefit from, um, our, our way of thinking in like You know, I'm not one of those... I'm from the South Side of Chicago, so I hear peacemaking and, like, kumbaya comes to my head. And I'm not one of those guys. Like, I'm... Like, I I, I was telling students just today, like, when I was... I remember growing up, my mom being like, you got to fight your own battles, Tom. (laughs) And, like, I don't remember saying, you got to negotiate, Tom. You got to mediate this. (laughs) And... But I see it now. I mean, as a father, as an older person, like, the importance of uh, working with people. And the center is just it's an amazing place to, to see students, uh, professionals work with organizations like Miller cores and Harley Davidson and Aurora health and coming together to try to help nurture and build and develop communities. And so it's, it's just a great, great place. And I'm, I'm able to do things like research that draws on some of my skills, um, write grants to try to help fund the, the work we're doing and, uh, to keep people employed doing great jobs and, and the things to do so I I just I've just been really lucky to be able to kind of balance these two things with two organizations that I I'm I'm in awe of to be honest
0: Tom without without sounding whatever I'm sure that even though you were the same age that Jim's looking down and was and is extremely proud of what you're doing but also all the things that you mentioned do interconnect. You know, what the center does, does interconnect with what the Foley Foundation does. We had talked offline about um, something I know that Pat understands very well, and that's the issue of homelessness in in the United States that's uh, in such, such a difficult area. I know that Marquette Center does some, uh, my words, not yours, metrics regarding looking at certain parts of a city and how you can come up with Instances of things like domestic violence and uh, criminal activity. That if you can change some of those things, it can make that those places in the city a safer, a better place to live. I'm, I'm probably mixing metaphors here, but but the fact that there's organizations like yours and what Marquette is doing, doing that does does give us hope. I think what I've learned from talking to all of you is a couple things. From the, the, the Foley Foundation part of this is something that I believe in my heart anyway. And that is the importance of journalism, truth finding in that, but also the security of people that do what many of us would never do. Mm-hmm. And that is cover the really tough stories. And then what I've learned, it's what been over now 10 years that the center has been in existence. And the fact that you're teaching the next generation about conflict resolution uh, at, at, at such an early stage is only going to be extremely valuable to society going forward. Mm. And I
1: think one of the, the things, that, and I think this is the connection between the center and, and Jim. And for one, if the center was here when we were undergrads, Jim would have been probably the first one through the door right. to be like, I want to be part of this. But I think what we can learn from Jim and what I learned from the center is this whole idea of the, how we can, quote unquote other people people like it's very easy to think there's a problem in Syria, Syria there's a problem in Iran there's a problem in, in the Congo wh- wherever it might be and that's just a problem somewhere else and I don't think it's any different than what a lot of us are able to do because I mean i I'm aware we have our own lives we have everyone has their own issues their own but it's very easy to just think of like like homelessness it's someone else's problem uh, I don't as long as I don't have to see them as an individual it's very easy for it just to be a problem and one of the things i i'm really impressed with the center and what it does and it allows students that are coming to milwaukee that may not be from here or may be from milwaukee to actually meet people that people talk about the marquette bubble and i does it or does it not exist and that's like anything in a city Right. right like you you Four blocks away in, in city, any university probably has that right. issue to deal with. Right, that. but these these you, you start un, uncovering this, and you start seeing like there are people we're talking about. Then it's a lot easier to begin become involved and to care, and it, it, and it's hard not to care if you can see someone as a person, which is I, that's what the center does. They 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 get into the neighborhood to be part of it, not. It's not like a condescending, like, we can help you. We're not there to help. It, like, help in the sense that you need fixing. We're, we're there to be part of this. We're right. all here. Right. Like, let's, let's work together. And so I, I see the connection from, like, I never, I, I'll admit, I didn't understand, Jim, why do you have to be in Syria? Can't you just be in Chicago? Right. Can't you just be here? But I get it. I, I, it's easier. Working here makes it easier for me to understand my friend
0: and why he did. Right. He did. Well, your tribute to the school and to the foundation, really appreciate you taking the time, Tom. Thanks, thanks for uh, giving us uh, some more detail into both uh, Jim Foley's life, but also uh, sort of the outputs uh, after he passed of things like the center and other programs that continue the vision that is so necessary today, okay. especially, specifically today when we are taping this.
1: Yeah, ab- so, absolutely. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, man.
0: I trust you found that as compelling as I did. Marquette University has a theme that they've had for a number of years, Be the Difference. And it's clear from my conversation with Tom that he has lived that uh, throughout his uh, career with all the work he's done, all the uh, things that he's been involved in that assist other people. Um, and obviously the, the combined work he's doing at the center, as well as what he's doing with the Foley Foundation, um, makes that even more apparent. I want to make sure that um, you take a look at jamesfoleyfoundation.org. It's got a lot of information there about the mission of the organization, the mission of advocating for hostages, for protection for journalists, and we so need that in today's very chaotic world. There's also a mission statement of sorts on the uh, foundation's website, but there's a a very simple phrase at the bottom of uh, the first page and it's inspiring moral courage one person at a time. So I hope this gets you interested in what the foundation is working on and that you will uh, try to get involved in, in some fashion, but at least you become aware of the difficulties that uh, journalists have around the world, and even in our own country, in terms of security and other related issues. Well, again, want to thank Tom Durkin for taking the time to talk to us today. Um, I want to urge all of you to uh, get engaged, stay involved in any issues that uh, move you, and my hope is is to do more of these conversations uh, throughout the year that clearly do touch and impact the AML community. This is John Byrne for AML Conversations. We will talk to you next time.